Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus, and so the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Albana and Fafar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he not actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm. And I bow myself in the house of Rimmon when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. And the Lord uh, pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. This summer as a church, uh, you all, and now I can say we all, have been looking at Elijah and Elisha. There are two prophets who, what they do is exhibit the power of God in a skeptical world. That's what they've been calling this sermon series. And I know that as the elders and Greg put together this sermon series, one of the things that he was thinking about is how in this world um, we have a lot of similarities to the world of Elijah and Elisha. Not a lot of people believed in the one true God then. And nor do they now. And not a lot of people believe that God would actually work and do things in this world then. And nor do they now. And so this morning we get to look at the ministry of Elisha. And we get to look at the story of a man named Naaman. Who was a very, very powerful man and yet a very sick man. 
who desperately needed God's healing. So we're going to look at the story of his healing this morning, and let me pray for us as we get started. Father, thank you that you still speak today, that you are present with us this morning by your Spirit, and that you are willing and able to work in our lives. Father, speak to us this morning, convict us with your word, and draw us closer to yourself. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin by getting to know the characters in our story this morning. I think one of the best ways to read Old Testament narrative, and that is Old Testament story, is to get to know the people in the story. And these people, while they lived 3,000 years ago, they're interacting with the very same God that we're interacting with today. And so I want to start with a brief reminder of who Elijah was and what prophets were doing in ancient Israel. So Elijah was the son of a man named Shaphat, and he was the successor and mentee of Elijah. Elijah continued Elijah's prophetic ministry, and he was, for all intents and purposes, just as awesome as Elijah. Elijah is the one who's famous for getting the chariot ride up to heaven, but Elijah does twice as many miracles as Elijah, and as Dan shared last week, even raises a son back from the dead. So Elijah was a man of God who was filled with the Spirit of God who did God's work. He's a man of God filled with the Spirit of God who did God's work. But as we get started this morning, the one thing I want to remind you of is that Elijah was a normal human being. Elijah was a normal human being, no more special or unique than you. He had a unique call on his life, but so do you. And Elijah's life isn't a life that we should just look back on and say, wow, 3,000 years ago, God did some crazy things. Elijah's life is a life that we should seek to emulate as well. Not to be viewed as a thing of the past, but as a thing of the present. And while this, this probably doesn't mean that you're going to raise someone from the dead, though that is technically possible, what it means is that the same Holy Spirit who is living in Elijah is living in us as well. And because of that, the power that we see Elijah show is a power that we have living in us as well. So in the simplest terms, prophets like Elijah, they were the mouthpieces of God. A prophet's main function was to proclaim or to prophesy the word of God to both the people who are a part of God's family, those being the Israelites, and the people who weren't a part of God's family, basically everyone else. And Elijah lived in a time when the nation of Israel had been shattered into two. So there's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom, and Elijah ministers in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was especially prone to not following God. And so he kind of had his his work cut out for him in ministering in this northern kingdom. So that's Elijah, Elisha. See, those two are so hard. I'm going to mix them up all morning. So that's Elisha, and that's what prophets do. So let's get into the story now. So... There's a man named Naaman, and in the first couple verses that you heard Chris read for us, here's what it says. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Now that basically just sounds like a resume to me, and a pretty impressive one at that. So he serves the king of Syria, who's a really powerful man, and Naaman is essentially the right-hand man of the king of Syria. Naaman was held in high favor, mostly because he had led the Syrians to a bunch of different victories. And the one thing that's notable that I just want you to notice right at first is that it says, 
the Lord had given victory to Syria. And this is worth noting as we start here because it's a common theme that we'll see throughout this chapter. And that's that the Lord is in control, not just of what's happening in Israel, not just of what's happening within God's family, within God's church, within God's people. He's also in control of everything that's happening out there as well. And so every battle that the Syrians had ever won, the Lord had given victory to them for. The fancy theological word for this is sovereign, but all it means is that he is in control. He's in control of the lives of those who know him as well as the lives who don't. He's in control 3,000 years ago, and he's in control this morning too. So after reading Naaman's resume, his list of accolades and accomplishments, we come to the point that would have made every Jewish reader's jaw drop. And that's, but he was a leper. But he was a leper. Being a leper in the Old Testament meant that someone had some type of infectious skin disease. It wasn't just one disease. It was kind of a catch-all generic term. But at the core, what it meant to be a leper was that you were unclean. And when you were unclean, what that meant is you couldn't go anywhere near God's people, and you definitely couldn't go anywhere near God. And so as the Jewish readers read this passage, what they would have immediately said is, oh, wow, Naaman's a really impressive, awesome guy. Wow, wow, wow. And then they see that, but he was a leper, and they go, well, don't let him anywhere near us. Don't let him anywhere near Israel. We don't want anything to do with him, and God doesn't want anything to do with him either. You can read about what the Bible says about leprosy in Leviticus 13 to 14. There's a lot of different rules But at the core of what we should know this morning is that being a leper made you unclean and being unclean meant you couldn't go anywhere near God's people and you couldn't go anywhere near God either. But remember that Naaman is a Syrian. So Naaman isn't Jewish. He doesn't care about God's laws and he might not even know about them either. And so regardless of how Naaman's Syrian community view the disease, it was a bad one and it was contagious and it would most likely kill him. So as we begin our story this morning, we have a very impressive man who has a very big problem. And that problem is so big that it might actually kill him. So that's character number one, Naaman. Character number two is a little slave girl whose name we never learn. This girl, we learn, is from Israel and was taken captive when the Syrian army went and invaded northern Israel. And despite being a slave whose family might have actually been killed by Naaman, she has compassion on her boss, on her, on her mistress's husband. And this is what this little slave girl says. She says, Would that my Lord were with a prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so pause with me and notice the beauty of her compassion in this statement. Would that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. This is the man who might have killed her parents. And what she comes and what she says is, would that he were with the prophet, he might actually be healed. Regardless of her low position in the house as a slave girl, She reaches out desiring that her master would be healed. And her words, they're as shocking as they are kind. Would that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would be healed. 
So I want you to think for a moment about who the people are in your lives that you might say this to. Who the people are in your lives who show you their brokenness, like Naaman showed his, this little slave girl his brokenness every day. Every day she could look at his arms and look at his torso and see this infectious skin disease, this discolored, this discolored skin, and see his brokenness. She was staring at it every single day. And her simple response was, would, would you go meet God? If you would just go and meet God, that would change everything. And so I want you to think for a moment, who are the people in your lives? Now, maybe, maybe this is because I've been hired as the community outreach pastor, but think, who are the people in your lives who show you their brokenness? Who are the people in your lives that you get to see? You get to see their brokenness in their marriage or in their work or in their addictions or in their other relationships. Where do you see brokenness? And where could you say, I know someone who can heal you? Would you go to him? I know someone who could heal you. Would you go from? Would you go to him? This is the basis of our outreach. This is the basis of our outward working as Christians. To go out into a broken world, to let people show us their brokenness, and then to speak life and healing and truth to them. I do want to point out one other thing about how she does this, though. This little slave girl doesn't just say, go to the prophet to be healed. First, she notices her, her, his brokenness. And that's an important order there because he, she couldn't just point him to go get healed if she didn't know what he needed to be healed of. Now, for some people, for most people, it's not going to be as obvious as Naaman who would have, who would have had scars and white tissue and hair falling out all over his body. It's a very obvious brokenness. For other people, the brokenness isn't so obvious. But either way, what you have to do is be able to see and be shown their brokenness before you push them to God. Because if you're just pushing them to God without actually knowing what they need to be healed of, then you're not actually helping them because they don't know what they need to be healed of and they don't know why they're going to the prophet to be healed. So I want you to think about who you might be able to push to God like this little slave girl. Because this is our call as Christians to speak life and brokenness and lead people to the healer. Now, part of the challenge of this story is also the immense faith that this little slave girl has. Now, this little slave girl wasn't just saying, oh, there, there's a guy in Israel who there's a, there's a chance that if you go to him and you bring the right stuff and, and you say the right words, that maybe you'll get healed. This girl had immense faith that were Naaman to go to the prophet, he would be healed. And so I think this is a challenge to our own faith this morning to ask, do I really believe that God will heal people? And we'll talk more about what that healing might look like, but whether it's physical or spiritual healing, do I really believe that God might heal someone? Because if I really believe that God would heal someone, then I might actually be more inclined to tell them that they should go to God. And that's what this, that's what this little girl does. She's so confident that God would heal Naaman that she's immediately willing to say, yes, go to Naaman, go to Elijah, go be with him. And so our story moves along, and seemingly without hesitation, Naaman packs up 
dispersion by the faith of this little slave girl, and he heads south to go meet the prophet who's in Samaria. He obtains a letter from his king. This is how the official way would have happened. He obtains a letter from his king, who the king of Syria at the time was probably Ben-Hadad II. So he gets a letter from Ben-Hadad II, and he takes it over to King Joram, who's in Israel. That's the, that's the king of the northern kingdom. And he takes this letter, and the letter, the letter essentially says from the one king, Hello, I have a servant. You should have him healed. And so that's, that's how it went down in ancient Israel, I guess. So Naaman rolls into northern Israel with a caravan in tow. And so verse 5 tells us that he brings 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, the clothing thing seemed a little weird to me at first, too. But it wasn't just because he needed to change clothes a lot. He wasn't like a big outfit guy. It was, it was, it was a tradition in the ancient Near East. You would bring clothes from your place to another place and kind of share. I don't know if we do that. I didn't bring you any clothes from Chicago. But I think we can kind of get around that. So he's got his ten changes of clothing. And then he has, um, he has uh, 6,000 shekels of gold and ten talents of silver. And so if you get out your little, like, ancient Near Eastern monetary conversion chart, um, what that comes out to is 750 pounds of silver and 145 pounds of gold. So I don't really know how many, like, horses you need to bring that much gold and silver, but I think it's a lot. So, so he's traveling with 1,000 pounds of precious metals along to Israel, and he's going to bring them to the king, and then he's going to get healed. So he kind of has an idea of how this all is going to work out. And the funny thing that, that Naaman presumes and that the king of Syria presumes is that if a prophet is important, he'll be at the king's palace. That's where an important man should be. An important man should be at the king's palace. So Naaman rolls up to the king's palace with his 750 pounds of silver and 145 pounds of gold. And he knocks on the door and he hands the king of Israel the letter from the king of Syria. And the king of Syria does something that we don't do today anymore, but that he did, which is rip his clothes. So the king of, the king of Israel rips his clothes and people would do this in the ancient world. They would rend their clothes as a way of showing grief and terror. And so the king of Israel rends his clothes, and, it's, and this is what he says. He says, am I a god to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? And at first that sounds kind of good. It's like, well, yeah, the king of Israel knows I'm not a god. I can't heal someone. But if you kind of work around towards the back of his logic, what he's really saying is, there's no God in Israel who can actually heal someone. And so it's a beautiful contrast in this story. You have this little slave girl. We don't know how old she was. We don't, know how, we don't even know what her name was. You have this little slave girl. And then you have the king of the, Israel, of the Israelite kingdom. And this little slave girl has such profound faith. God can and will heal my master. And then the king of Israel thinks there's not a chance anyone in Israel can heal anything. And so the king of Israel actually took this as a war declaration. The king of Israel thought this is a trap. You know, he, he, wants, he, wants, me to be, he wants me to heal his servant and he knows I can't do that. And then he's going to use that as an excuse to invade again, to be mad. So we see this beautiful contrast, this little slave girl who trusts so deeply that God can and will act in this world, 
And then this Israelite king who thinks there's no God here who can do anything like that. Somehow the prophet Elijah knew Naaman was, the, was with the king and Elijah sends a request to him. And this is what he says. He says, bring the man to my house that he may know that a prophet still remains in Israel. So what does Naaman do next? He takes his 145 pounds of gold and 750 pounds of silver and 10 changes of clothes and he rolls on to Naaman's house or to Elijah's house. And Elijah, it seems like he could probably sniff the pride on Naaman coming from just miles away because the kind thing to do when someone comes and knocks on your door is to go and answer the door. It's just the normal thing to do. But rather than answering the door, Elijah sends a messenger out. He doesn't even go and see him. He just sends a messenger out. And the messenger says, go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And Naaman, probably upset about a whole number of things, first off that the prophet wouldn't even come and see him, Naaman says this, he says, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Now, what this sounds to me like is that Naaman wants a magic trick to be done. Like, that's, that's how a magic trick sounds. You wave your hand around something, and then you say abracadabra, some magic words, and then you get healed. And this is what Naaman wants to happen. He wants a magic show. He has an expectation of how he should be healed, and he's upset that things aren't looking like that. So I was asking Grace's opinion on Naaman the other night, you know, as a medical professional. Because I'm the pastor, she's the nurse. I figured I should, uh, I should ask the medical professional in the house what she thought about Naaman. And so Grace has worked in the emergency department for several years now. And so I asked what it's like when people like Naaman come in to the emergency department. People like Naaman who, they're sick, but, and everyone else knows that they're sick, but yet they seem to have already diagnosed themselves They seem to have already decided how they should be healed, and they seem to have already decided exactly how they should be treated and what should be done. And they just look at this medical professional as, you need to affirm all the work that I've done on WebMD, because I've done great research and I know exactly what's wrong with me. So there are people like that on one side, and then there are people on the other side who come in to nurses and doctors and medical professionals, and they just say, I don't know what's wrong with me. But I know that you have an expertise in this, and so I hope that you would be willing to treat me and help me feel better. And I think what Grace and I ended up coming to an agreement about is that people like the former, like Naaman, are both annoying to emergency department nurses, and they're also annoying to prophets as well. Because they think they have a very good idea of what's wrong with them, and they think they have a very good idea of what should be healed, but they don't actually And so Naaman comes to God, well, he comes to God's prophet who is representing God, and he comes on his own terms. And there's good reason why the author keeps describing exactly how much stuff Naaman has, and that's because Naaman is holding all of this stuff. He's holding hundreds and hundreds of pounds of precious metals, so he can't even dip himself into a river seven times. 
And so essentially, Elijah's request is that Naaman would humble himself. And this is something that he is absolutely unwilling to do. He's too prideful. He's too prideful to let go of his thousands of pounds of precious metals and dip himself into a river seven times. You see, he thought all the stuff that he was bringing, all the gold and silver that he was bringing to God, he thought all that stuff would make God heal him. But instead, it was the very things that were preventing him from being healed. All the stuff that he thought was going to heal him was preventing him from being healed. And if that doesn't sound like our culture and society today, then I don't know what does. All the stuff in our world that we think and that other people think will heal them isn't working. All the stuff that we think will make us feel okay isn't doing the trick. And Naaman was holding so much. He was holding so much gold, so much silver, so many clothes. And I think this weight that he was holding was physical, but it was also spiritual and emotional as well. He was bringing so many things to God, and he thought, I'm going to give all this stuff to God. And when I give all of this stuff to God, God's going to want to heal me. That's how this relationship is going to work. I'm going to bring him my offering, and he's going to heal me. But all Elijah wanted and all God wanted was for Naaman to humble himself and to admit his need and unworthiness. And that's all that God wants from us as well, to admit our need and unworthiness And just let him heal us. So I want to ask all of you this morning, what are all the things that you bring to God to show that you're worthy to him? Are they your early morning devotional times with the Lord? Or your perpetual volunteering? Is it the work that you do that you think is so important or how well you think you treat your spouse or your siblings? What are the things that you think, and these are good things, I'm not saying these things are bad in any way, but what are the things that you're offering to God as if this is some sort of transaction? As if this is some sort of transaction where you have something to give and he gives healing and love and kindness in response. Because nothing made Naaman worthy of the free gift of healing. And nothing makes us worthy of God's free gift of healing as well. So our final contrast of the story comes again between Naaman and his, ser- and his servants. And so his servants bring their childlike piety and here's what they say to Naaman. They say, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So what Naaman's servants do is they identify Naaman's neediness and they point him back to the prophet. They actually, in some ways, kind of point to Naaman's pride. They say, isn't it a great word the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Wash and be clean. And so once again, we're reminded that we have a role in people's lives, like Naaman's servants had in his life, to point people back to God when they feel too prideful or too big or too important to lay down their to lay down their life and go to God we get to point them back to him and this is what Naaman's servants do and their wisdom is in direct contrast to Naaman's pride so there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that's called the Septuagint 
And in the Septuagint, it's all in Greek, and this was what was read mostly in the second and third century in the early church. They read the Septuagint because they couldn't actually read the Hebrew Old Testament. So they would read the Greek in the New Testament, and then they didn't know how to read Hebrew, so they made a translation into the Greek. And so when we come to this word for Naaman dipping into the river, the translators of the Septuagint make this interesting choice, and they use the word for dipping, they use this word baptizing. And I don't think you have to be a Greek or a Hebrew scholar to know that that word is very related to our word baptism today. And so what we see in our story this morning is that Naaman has a type of baptism. He has a baptism-like experience when he dips himself into the water seven times, the significance of the word seven being that seven in Scripture is the word of completion. So there's seven days in a week. There were seven seals and seven scrolls in Revelation. Seven is the number of completion. And so he's, he's dipped into the river. He's baptized to completion seven times. And when he comes out, he's healed, his flesh is restored, and he is clean. And in Naaman's healing and in Naaman's baptism, what happens is he becomes a part of the family of God. And this is actually the first time in Scripture that a leper is ever healed, like a leper leper. Aaron at one point has leprosy briefly, but this is the first time that someone who is described as a leper is healed. And it's also one of the first time that someone who is not a part of the family of God, who is a Gentile, who's out in the world, becomes a part of the family of God. And so Naaman comes and he stands directly in front of Elijah. And this is what he says. He says, behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. I want to take a quick moment to address an important question um, before I keep going with the story. And I know this is something that Dan Schustak addressed and I hear really well last week. And that's that no doubt many of you, like Naaman, have gone to God desiring to be healed. And while some of you may have experienced that healing, many of you probably have not. And this is one of the tensions in our life and the tensions in Scripture is that sometimes God heals our hearts without yet healing our bodies. God has us living in this broken and sinful world, in a world where we see so many sicknesses, so many illnesses, so much cancer, so much death, and so much dying, and we're still living in it. And our Christian hope is for the new heavens and the new earth, which... Revelation 21 says there will be no more death, no more dying, no more sickness, no more tears. But right now we live in a tension where spiritual healing is offered and so is physical healing. But sometimes that physical healing doesn't come until the new heavens and the new earth come. And that's not an answer that really can comfort anyone completely. Because what Hebrews 11.1 1 says about hope is hope is the confidence in things, faith is the confidence in things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. And so when we think about this tension that we live in, part of what we always have to do is look forward to the future. 
and know that God's promises, while they are all are not totally fulfilled now, they will all totally be fulfilled in the future. And so that physical healing is coming, but it might be coming in the new heavens and the new earth. And that complete spiritual healing is coming, but it might not come to a full fruition in our world today. And this is the tension that we live in and the tension that we cannot avoid. And it's not an answer that is perfect or tidy and you can't wrap a bow around it, but it's the world that we live in. But I think what we see that is important in this passage specifically is that the more important healing that needed to happen for Naaman was the healing of his heart. Naaman had leprosy, and that leprosy at some point was going to heal him, and that was really a terrible disease that even now we there's still... I have a friend who's a missionary with a South American mission to the le, to lepers. So it's a terrible disease that needs a lot of work to be done, and, and Naaman needed to be healed of that disease, but more importantly, he needed his heart to be healed. Because while that leprosy was going to kill him in this life, if his heart was never healed, that would kill him forever. And eternal life was a result of his heart being healed, not his skin being healed. And so that is the promise that we look at and see in this passage. And that's that complete spiritual healing is offered in the good news of the gospel. And so upon being healed, Naaman immediately returns to Elijah and he attempts to pay the prophet for his healing services. And like I said before, Elijah refuses He refuses because God's healing cannot be exchanged for any amount of gold or silver, nor good works, nor anything else you could come up with. And so after he refuses that, he refuses that gift. Naaman kind of comes around and goes, okay, well, I guess if I can't give you anything, maybe you can give me some stuff. And so the first thing he asks for, he like rubs his genie lamp. The first thing he asks for is a bunch of dirt. (laughs) He asks for a bunch of dirt. And this seems like a really, really odd request to ask for a bunch of dirt. But you see, in ancient Near Eastern practices, place was really, really important. And so he had to create an altar to this new god who he was going to worship. And so he needed a bunch of dirt to do so. And so it sounds kind of weird and finicky. We actually should look at this and see it as a good thing. That Naaman realized, oh, I can't go and worship At this false God's temple, I need to build an altar to God here. And God honors when we dedicate places. It's why it's why it's beautiful to have a church building that's dedicated to the Lord and to worshiping him. And so when Naaman asked for this pile of dirt, it's actually a really, really good thing that he wants to build an altar and a temple to God in Syria. The second request, though, is a bit more odd and maybe even problematic. You see it in the last couple of verses of our passage. He asks if God will pardon him or forgive him when he goes into the temple of the false god Rimmon with his master. So Naaman's asking, he's, remember, he's the servant to the king of Syria. And so he's asking this question, can I go into the temple to this false god and even bend my knee? Can I go down and even bend my knee? next to my master in this temple with this false god. And Elisha, weirdly enough, doesn't really answer the question. He just says, go in peace. And I don't know if there's a perfect answer for why Elijah does this, but what I would like to propose is that Elijah sees the difficulty of being a follower of God 
in a world and in a country where no one else followed God. And Elijah sees that there's a difficulty here. He sees that, that, that Naaman's work is really challenging. And he seems to say, you have the spirit of God now. And let's let the spirit of God convict you. Let's not let me convict you. And I think that's what happens here. I think Elijah is saying, I'm going to let your conscience settle that one. So you go in peace with the spirit of God. And so the lives we live in a world that is skeptical of our God are messy and complex. But rather than condemn Naaman, Elijah just blesses him and says, go in peace. Go and serve that one true God and do it to the best of your ability. And I know that because he's with you, he will convict you and be with you along the way. So I want you to reflect for a moment on each of the characters we interacted with in this story. You have Naaman, who is a broken and sick person who just needs to be healed. He needs physical healing. He needs emotional healing. He needs spiritual healing. You have a little girl who pushes her master to God. You have this little girl whose faith is so full and so rich. She's so confident that in God there is healing. Then you have a king. A king who has profound unbelief and doubt and who can't seem to ever comprehend that God would actually work in this world today. And then you have Elijah. God's ordained means to bring healing and grace to someone. And so as you think about those four people, Naaman, the little girl, the king, and Elisha, who do you resonate with this morning? Where do you find yourself this morning? Do you find yourself in a place where you need really deep healing and where you just need to receive God's love and healing? Or do you find yourself right now full of faith, excited to push others to Jesus, excited to do the work of God in this world? Or maybe you find yourself in that spot like the king, in a spot of unbelief going, like, is any of this really even true? And is God actually really doing anything in our lives today? Or maybe you're like Elijah and you can see right now how God is using you to bring healing to someone else's brokenness. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whichever of those people you find yourself relating to, know that God was with each of those people in this story, and he's with with each of us this morning. That wherever you're at, in those spots of belief or unbelief, in those spots of working and doing amazing things for God or just needing to receive from him, wherever you are at, he's with you this morning. And so I hope that each character resonates with you in some way. But if you remember anything this morning, I want you to remember that just like Naaman, you bring nothing to God but your own brokenness. God doesn't want your resume like that first verse and a half of Naaman. He wants your repentance. And so even the greatest of us, the ones who have the most adjectives affixed to our names, the most three-letter initials in our email signatures, we bring nothing to God but our brokenness. And at the end of each of our spiritual resumes, there's that little but. We could say, oh, Tyler does this and that and this and that. But he's broken and he's unclean. And in my own way, I'm a leper just like Naaman. And that's true for me and it's true for each of you that no matter how many awesome things you can list off of who you are and what you've done, 
and I don't doubt that there are, there are many of those things, there's always going to be that but, that we are broken and unclean, and we need to be healed by God. And that's true of me, that's true of all of you, and that's true of every single person in this world. And what we see is that sometimes that but is something really, really obvious, something that's out in the open, but sometimes it's just a little part of our heart. So there's a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's awesome. And it says this about Naaman. It says, all Naaman needed was nothing, and it was the one thing that Naaman didn't have. All Naaman needed was nothing, and it was the one thing Naaman didn't have. All you need is nothing. You have nothing to bring to God but your brokenness. And he doesn't want your resume. He just wants your repentance. When I was early on in seminary, I was living off like a couple hundred dollars a month. It was a wild time. I had like seven roommates in a two-bedroom apartment. Actually, that's not an exaggeration. Well, there were six. About seven is an exaggeration. There were six. So families in the church would invite me to their house for meals and stuff. And I would always ask when they invited me for a meal, I'd say, well, what can I bring? And they would always say, oh, you don't need to bring anything. To which I would promptly respond, I know when you say to a normal person, don't bring anything, that's code for like, bring some wine or like some cheese or cookies or something. Like when someone says, don't, you don't need to bring anything. That's like, bring a bag of chips, please. So I would, I would ensure them, I would say, if you tell me to bring nothing, I'm actually going to bring nothing. And thankfully, most of them were okay with that. But I think sometimes we have this same debate in our head with God. We read in Scripture that he says, you bring nothing, and we're like, well, what could I bring? Maybe I'll just bring this little bit of service, or this little bit of money, or this little bit of stuff. And if the story of Naaman reminds us of anything this morning, it's that we truly can't bring anything to the table when it comes to our healing and salvation. And I don't want to downplay the importance of responding to God's love and being spurred on to good works, like Ephesians 2.10 says. But we can bring nothing when it comes to our salvation. And so just like Naaman's 145 pounds of gold and 750 pounds of silver are, as the prophet Isaiah says, like a polluted garment or like filthy rags, they're absolutely nothing. We bring nothing but our brokenness. And I want to remind you that this is true if you're just thinking about faith for the first time this morning, that you don't bring anything to the table. But it's also true if you've been a Christian for five years or 50 years or 70 years, however long, you still don't bring anything to the table. And this is the scandal of the good news of who Jesus is. The overflowing grace of Jesus is what Naaman encountered through the prophet Elijah, that he didn't need to bring anything to be healed. And it's a scandal because it offends the sensibilities of any good, well-established person. If I was a good, well-established person in seminary, it would have offended me to have someone say, oh, you can't bring anything. I would have had to come up with something. But I wasn't a well-established person, and so I was like, thank you for the meal. I'm here. We see in this story that there are so many different characters that we can resonate with. There's so many different characters who we can look and say, how can I be that person to someone else? But at the heart of this story is a simple truth 
that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation but our repentance. And God wants you to turn to him and receive him in love. And there's an old, there's an old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that's the truth of this story, and that's the truth of the good news of the gospel, and that's the truth that we get to bring to this world when we see people and we see their brokenness. That's the truth we get to bring to them, that there is nothing in your hand you need to bring simply to the cross you need to cling. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this story, for these people who lived 3,000 years ago, who interacted with you in such amazing ways. Father, we're struck by how deep your love is for us and how how kind you are to us. God, I pray that by your spirit you would use these words in scripture this morning to more deeply draw us to to yourself. Father, would you build us together as a church to be able to serve and love this town, this country, this world, and everyone we come into contact with, with the good news of your son, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.